It's possible to perform for God without being transformed by God. It's possible to serve God without really being born again. By the fact that Jesus speaks of he who overcomes implies that there are members in the church of Sardis who are not overcomers, therefore not genuinely saved. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have spent this week looking at the church at Sardis, one of seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Each of these churches has some unique issues. And we've noted that although by all appearances the church at Sardis seemed to be spiritually alive and active on the outside, on the inside they were really dead. Today, Dr. Brogy will note that although this church may have been down, they were not out, that there was an ember of life there and Jesus urged them to stoke up the spiritual flames. Listen, when they were newly saved, they were like a burning, blazing log that had influence and warmth and power and light. But now they were dead. Strengthen the things that remain. Rekindle these sparks. There's still some life there. Oh, they were still holding the services, handing out the bulletins, shaking hands, serving in the nursery, singing the hymns. But unless they got right, Jesus was going to come like a thief. By the way, the book of Revelation, of course, is the last book in the Bible to be written. So we don't know from the Bible itself whether or not they responded. However, we do know from church history that a godly man by the name of Pastor Melito, who was actually pastoring this church 100 years later, he left us a document that was a defense for Christianity, an apology for Christianity that he wrote to the emperor of Rome. Pastor Melito, by the way, parenthetically, also wrote about the millennial reign of Messiah, that Jesus would literally rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years, which tells me that he literally believed what God said in this book. And so this church apparently responded. Third, he concludes with Sardis's remnant of being encouraged. Now, there's two classes of people in this church. There's the dead and the dying, and he's telling them to remember and to repent. But there's a second group whom we might call the dedicated. And so he now encourages the dedicated on two levels. First, they are encouraged for their virtuous life. Even in this church, there was a faithful few. There was the master's minority. There were some people who who were walking with the Lord. And you know they had to be grieved over the state of the church overall because they were just few in number. We read in verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there's a remnant here in the church who are not stained, not soiled by the world. And when people walk carelessly on a street, they can pick up the mud and the dirt of the street. And Christians who are careless in living in this world can become stained by this world. Some of your translations say soiled. The NAS says stained. Another says defiled. You could render it in a lot of different ways. But the fact that their garments were soiled gives us a clue to the problem here. Behind all their religious activity, behind their singing, behind their serving, behind their tithing, behind their worship, there was the defilement of sin. 
And the heart of the problem is always a problem of the heart. It always, virtually, every time can be traced back to sin. And it may be some small area of compromise, but it doesn't take much to grieve the Holy Spirit and to short-circuit His power in the human life. And so notice what he says, the promise given to them, if they will walk, um, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is an affirmation. They're going to walk with him in white. Why? Because they are worthy. Now understand, the term white garments is used in two ways in the book of Revelation. It's used in reference to our justification, and it's also used in reference to our sanctification. Put out in the margin next to verse 5, where it's used in reference to justification, Revelation 7.14. Let me read that to you first. There's a great multitude. We call them tribulation saints. They are saved after the church is raptured. They refuse to bow down and worship the Antichrist. And because of that, they are executed. Their heads are cut off. And we read in Revelation 7, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That speaks of justification. That speaks of someone believing on the Lord Jesus that they might be saved. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and therefore they are in heaven. And by the way, if you don't have a white robe, if you've never received the righteousness of Christ, if you're relying on your righteousness to get you to heaven, you won't get to heaven. But put next to verse 4, if you would, Revelation 19 and verse 8. There it's used in reference to our sanctification. Listen clearly. It was given to her to clothe herself, the bride, in fine linen, bright and clean. What is this fine linen? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This kind of bright and clean robe speaks of our sanctification people who have lived consistently, and therefore the overall life they have is considered unstained by the world. And that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 4. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You're not worthy of salvation. You cannot earn salvation. Salvation is the gift of God, but someday one of the first things God does when you get to heaven is, I mentioned already, He will evaluate your stewardship. And if you are a good steward, He will bless you. He will reward you with these bright and clean garments. The half-brother of Jesus said it this way in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is, among other things, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Look, I'm notorious for getting stains on my clothes. It drives my wife crazy. You know, she'll work so hard, she'll put that OxyClean on there. She's take it off right now, get the OxyClean on, and she'll throw it in the washer. And, and sometimes I come home, and she said, well, I guess you can cut the grass in that shirt. That stain's never going to come out. A stain affects our appearance and our usability. And that's true in the spiritual realm. When you become stained by the world, it doesn't mean that you don't have exposure to the world. If being stained by the world means being with the world, then Jesus would have been stained all over because he was a friend of sinners. Look, a Christian can visit a restaurant and people can be getting drunk. As can be. I was in a restaurant recently and over at the bar, there were some people getting loaded. It was obvious. They were just laughing and giggling. I thought they were wasted, Audrey. But there are other people in the restaurant, same restaurant, by the choices they made, who are not drunk. And so it goes back to your motive, what drives your choices. Look, the the motive behind Christians who drink 
There's a reason we dropped Moody, and I'm disgusted with their decision to be able to attract new professors. They allow them now to drink and smoke in moderation and gamble. Hmm, okay. Even my own seminary, Moody's policy for 100 years, Dallas Seminary's policy since 1928, and they dropped the whole drinking thing because now all the old guard, the great theologians, men like Dr. John Walvert and Dr. Norman Geiser and Dwight Pentecost, and you know, all these old guard, they've died out. Howard Hendricks, and they all taught abstinence. They got there different ways. But they taught that's what the Scripture... Now they say, well, we were wrong for all these years. Oh, really? No, you're just compromising. You see, a, a person who goes into the restaurant and has to have his beer, he's basically saying that the Lord Jesus does not meet the deepest, most fundamental needs of my heart to be satisfied. And so I have to drink this beer instead of this lemonade. Hmm? Your motives drive your choices. And many choices that people make begin to stain them by the world. A few people, however, in Sardis, had not soiled their garments. They had made them white by keeping them unstained through the choices they made. Years ago, I read about ermines. I meant to bring a picture of an ermine for you this morning when it was still uh, politically correct for women to wear fur coats. One of the most expensive coats was a white fur ermine coat. Little animal. And this animal was hunted and the way they hunted them is the, they would go to the, find the small apertures of the ermine and they would coat the entrance to the ermine's den with, with mud. And then they'd send the dogs out and the dogs would chase the ermines and the ermines would run for cover. And when they came to their den that was coated with mud because they refused to defile their fur coat, they would fight the dog until their death. Listen, my friends, we need, some, we need some Christians who are like the Ermines, who are faithful unto death, who are willing to be countercultural for the cause of Jesus Christ, who are willing to make a difference by their virtuous life. So they're encouraged by their virtuous life, but they are also encouraged with their coming reward. We read now in verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, I've told you before, there are a minority of Christians in the world today who teach you can lose your salvation. And this is one of 10 verses in the New Testament that they typically draw their argument from. But remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if we have over 150 verses in the New Testament that affirm our eternal security, verses that are crystal clear, not to mention it's an oxymoron to say you have present tense eternal life and you can lose something that's eternal, but lay that aside. If you have over 150 clear verses, you interpret what to you might be unclear in light of what is very clear. And so some argue that Jesus is threatening to take away their salvation, to erase their names from the book of life, therefore losing their salvation. Others who know their Bible better, who recognize God in other places, teaches eternal security, and God can't contradict himself, say, well, the book starts with everybody's name written in the book of life. And at the end of time, when, or at the end of your time when you die, 
if you don't receive Jesus, then your name is erased from the book of life. And then they would say, because it's obvious at the end of the revelation, that everyone's name in the book of life is saved. And the book of life, as we'll see, is the same as the Lamb's book of life in, in the book of Revelation. They would say that, uh, therefore, he is speaking to those who never receive the Lord. Uh, it's interesting, and I can appreciate that argument, because at least they're trying to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, but I think it's a little bit contrived. Um, he who overcomes will fuss be clothed in white garments, and I will ume, not, it's a double negative for emphasis, I will not erase his name from the book of life. By the way, what you find here in verses 4 and 5 is the typical pattern you see throughout Scripture. Where on the one hand, like in uh, Matthew 18, the apostles come and Jesus, how many times should we forgive our brother? Up to seven times? No, up to 70 times seven. Have a heart of forgiveness. And so Christians who are saved, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are taught in the Lord's prayer to pray, you know, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Paul says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just like God in Christ forgave you. So we're commanded to forgive each other. Presupposition, it's possible for a Christian to withhold forgiveness to hold a debt against someone. On the other hand, Jesus goes right after that statement and he tells a parable and he, in the same breath, teaches that forgiveness is a sign of conversion. So on the one hand, we're commanded to do it in our sanctification. On the other hand, it's a sign of conversion. And so God gives these balancing truths. We could look at a dozen of them all the way through Scripture. So on the one hand, these people have robes of white by the deeds that they did. They were worthy of these robes by choices and decisions they make. Some people would then reason, hmm, okay, I may not have one of these special robes when I get to heaven, but I'm going to heaven. You hear these people all the time. I may not have some big mansion in glory, but I'll have a little log cabin in the corner. I mean, it's just pure ignorance to even think in those terms in reference to what the Father's house is. Lay that aside. There's some who think, well, I may not have that robe, but I'll be there. And so Jesus gives the balancing truth between sanctification and justification. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Ume, I will not erase his book, his name from the book of life. By the way, this is the exact same construction in John chapter 10, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give, we don't earn, I give them eternal life. And they will ume, double negative for emphasis, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You don't hold on to God. God holds them to you by His amazing, incredible grace. But in both places, it's a double negative for emphasis. The believer never needs to fear that somehow he might just forfeit his salvation, not if they have genuinely been saved. In fact, this particular verse is an affirmation not of losing salvation, but of how secure it is. He's saying, I will not erase your name, double negative, from the book of life. Let's read the entire verse. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the Lord Jesus describes these people, notice, as overcomers and clothed in white garments. 
The definition of an overcomer is one who overcomes, and it can best be understood by John's definition in 1 John. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Why? Because when you're born again, your life changes. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And if your life doesn't change and show real fruit, it just means you've never been saved. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we will see all the way through the revelation that the overcomer describes the genuine, true, real believer, and it demonstrates that they have real faith. Um, We've already seen that in reference to the church there in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10, that they were willing to be faithful even to the point of death. Likewise, Revelation 12.11, and they overcame him, the devil in the context. How? Because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, Jesus taught, you will persevere. And in the end, because you have real, genuine faith, he will give you a garment of justification, and he will not deny your name before his heavenly Father, because you are the real thing. Now think about that for a moment. One of these days, either by death or by rapture, we are going to heaven. And one of these days, Jesus is going to walk you down those streets to the throne of his Father. And if you know him, he is going to confess your name before his Father. Thank God for these and the church that made the master's minority, these few people, who not only knew him, but they walked with him. They not only had garments of justification, they had garments of sanctification. So he concludes, he who has an ear, let him hear. Not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. What he says to Ephesus and Laodicea and Thyatira and Smyrna, and what he says to the people of Community Bible Church. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications this morning. I learned from this passage, number one, that it's possible to have appearances of spiritual life without the reality. You can have the appearance of being saved without the reality of being saved. Without, excuse me, without the reality of spiritual life. I'm not talking about being saved, but you can be saved but not and think you're alive when you're really not. There's a lot of people like that in the church today. Ask yourself this question. If every single person here this morning at Community Bible Church, whatever campus you're on, if every single person were just like you, they gave like you, they served like you, they sang like you, they fasted like you, they prayed like you, they witnessed like you, what would Community Bible Church be like? Some of us used to be passionate for Jesus, but we virtually flatlined. Second, it's possible to perform for God without being transformed by God. It's possible to serve God without really being born again. By the fact that Jesus speaks of he who overcomes implies that there are members in the church of Sardis who are not overcomers, therefore not genuinely saved. 
Jesus deals with this problem in the Sermon on the Mount in that familiar text. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And if you know the context, he's not talking about people who embrace the isms of the world, but people who embrace Christianity. And he in no way denies the fact that they did do miracles, that they did preach that they did cast out demons, something that's possible for an unbeliever to do and the power of Jesus' name. But in spite of their false preaching, in spite of their false powers, though they use the Lord's name very freely, Lord, Lord, in reference to their name, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Third and finally, it's possible to regain spiritual vitality that has been lost. It's possible to regain the vitality that has been lost. Jesus is teaching us in this letter, even if we are dead, even if today you are guilty of ho-hum Christianity, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can remember and you can repent. And if you're here today and say, my heart is vibrant and it's going to be vibrant until Jesus comes, then be careful, therefore let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Don't forget the admonition of the Apostle Paul and don't forget Peter's failure. George Whitfield was a great pastor in London, England, and for seven years of his life he became a full-time evangelist. He was in a Bible study in Oxford with John and Charles Wesley, and he came to America in 1738 and was a part of the first great awakening, he went back to England to raise money for an orphanage there in the city of Savannah, Georgia. And when he got back, he was not welcomed in the pulpits. He had become too evangelistic, too passionate for Jesus. And like the Wesleys, he was excluded. So they went where they could preach. They preached in the open air, and he came back to America, and he, he preached to crowds of 20 and 30,000, and tens of thousands of people were converted, and through genuine conversion, the seeds were placed that brought down slavery both in England and here in the States. And one young man at the age of 17 who was living a godless, worldly, licentious life was a man by the name of Robert Robinson, Robertson. And Robertson was gloriously saved, and God called him into the ministry, and he became a great pastor. In fact, we sing one of his hymns. Most of the old hymns of the 18th and 19th century weren't written by song artists, but by pastors. You know the hymn, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above, praise the mountain, fix upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my, my, my sign of victory. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Unfortunately, he did not heed his own words, and he let his heart get cold, 
And he fell back into immorality. And on one particular day, by the providence and sovereignty of God, he found himself in the stagecoach with a woman, a woman whose head was buried in a hymnal. And she was sitting across from him. And she said, will you listen to these wonderful words? This is wonderful, the man who wrote this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. And he sat there with his head hung low. And then she came to this stanza. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And before she could finish the final stanza, He said, and I quote from his journal, Madame, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy once again. Peter got his life right with the Lord. Robert Robinson got his life right with the Lord. And some of you can today too. But if your heart is cold and indifferent, you've got to own it before you can do something about it. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity this Sunday, this Lord's Day, as you've commanded us to gather, to be able to read your word, to feed on it, that you've been here this morning speaking to us. Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I know, Father, there are some who can't even begin to live for you because they've never been born again. You said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So help someone in simple faith to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I look to you as my Savior. I thank you that you died instead of me, that you took the judgment for all of my sin, past, present, and future. And as the risen Lord, I trust you to save me. But you must believe the gospel. You must believe that God keeps his word, that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You must come in faith and in childlike, simple faith, believing God, say, Lord Jesus, save me. Because you have, I will never be ashamed of you. I commit myself to openly, publicly declaring you before men to be baptized as a symbol of my faith and by your mercy to live the rest of my days following you. Would you say that to him? He said, I did that years ago. I know I'm saved. I know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I'm like some of the people in Sardis. I claim to be alive. People think I'm alive. But Jesus knows in my heart of hearts that I'm dead. Would you remember? Would you repent? Would you get your heart right with him today? Father, we love you. We thank you for your persistence, for your long-suffering, for your eternal love with which you've loved us. We offer our prayer to you today in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's look at the church at Sardis, part of our study in the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV8. And when you contact us, why not consider helping us in our mission of reaching those who don't know Christ and in growing those who do in their relationship with Him. Just click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a one-time gift or about becoming a foundation partner. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at the Church of Brotherly Love, part of our study in Revelation as we search the Scriptures. Scriptures.